But I, I've just uh, noticed that recently there, uh, there seems to be kind of a surge of people that are struggling financially in, in our fellowship and people that have had some particular difficult challenges that they've been facing recently. And, um, you know, we always have those things, but it just seems like there's a little bit more than usual lately. And I, and I want to read a scripture to you that the Lord gave me uh, for you this morning related to that, if that's kind of something that you uh, can relate to. In Isaiah chapter 41, and this has nothing to do with a message, it's just something that the Lord put on my heart as I was um, coming up. He says, but you, O Israel, my servant, Jacob, whom I have chosen, you descendants of Abraham, my friend, I took you from the ends of the earth, from its farthest corners, I called you. I said to you, you are my servant. And these words are equally true for us. We're servants, we're chosen, and we are the friend of Christ. I have chosen you and have not rejected you. So do not fear, for I am with you. Do not be dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. For I am the Lord your God, who takes hold of your right hand and says to you, do not fear, I will help you. Do not be afraid, for I myself will help you, declares the Lord, your Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel. Isn't that encouraging? So as you're going through whatever things God's let you go through right now, it's a reminder from scripture that you're not alone and that he is with you, he has not forsaken you, he's not blind, he's not deaf, and he knows how to meet your need. And he's asking you to put your trust in him. Trust in the Lord with all your heart, lean not on your own understanding, in all your ways acknowledge him, and he will make your path straight, and he will bring you through. So. A word to precede the, the message here as we go to the book of Acts as we continue our study there. I want to pick up in verse 27. I've entitled the message this morning, Falsely Accused. It happens twice to Paul in this text. I don't know if this has ever happened to you to be falsely accused or slandered or gossiped about or misunderstood. Is there anybody that hasn't happened to? <laughs> Get out of here. Because <laughs> none of us can relate to you. Because <laughs> all the rest of us have gone through these things. All of it, it's happened to everybody here. And in the text, we find it happening to Paul. And I'm praying as we go through the text, even though it's kind of a, it's, it's not a very inspiring text in some ways, but I'm praying that God is going to use it to strengthen us and to build us up and to make us men and women who know how to respond biblically when not if, but when these moments come of misunderstanding or hurt feelings or even slander or false accusation. But let's pick up in verse 27. Paul has arrived in Jerusalem, as you may recall. He's been on a long journey. A call from God has been on his heart, but he's been told repeatedly as he's gone from city to city, uh, being transported by ship, that he is going to suffer. He will be persecuted. He will be put in bonds and chains and imprisoned when he gets to Jerusalem. And Paul's words to all of these, these, uh, uh, these prophecies have been, I consider my life nothing to me. If only I may finish the race and complete the task the Lord Jesus has given me, the task of testifying to the gospel of God's grace. And so we pick up the, the verse in verse 27 of chapter 21. When the seven days were nearly over, some Jews from the province of Asia saw Paul at the temple. They stirred up the whole crowd and seized him, shouting, Men of Israel, help us. This is the man who teaches all men everywhere against our people and our law 
and this place. And besides, he has brought Greeks into the temple area and defiled this holy place. They had previously seen Trophimus, the Ephesian in the city with Paul, and assumed that Paul had brought him into the temple area. The whole city was aroused, and the people came running from all directions. Seizing Paul, they dragged him from the temple, and immediately the gates were shut. While they were still trying to kill him, news reached the commander of the Roman troops that the whole city of Jerusalem was in an uproar. He at once took some officers and soldiers and ran down to the crowd. When the rioters saw the commander and his soldiers, they stopped beating Paul. The commander came up and arrested him and ordered him to be bound with two chains. Then he asked who he was and what he had done. Some in the crowd shouted one thing and some another. And since the commander could not get at the truth because of the uproar, he ordered that Paul be taken into the barracks. When Paul reached the steps, the violence of the mob was so great he had to be carried by the soldiers. The crowd that followed him kept shouting, away with him. As the soldiers were about to take Paul into the barracks, he asked the commanding officer, may I ask something, uh, may I ask you something? Do you speak Greek, he replied? Aren't you the Egyptian who started a revolt and led 4,000 terrorists out into the desert some time ago? Paul answered, I am a Jew from Tarsus in Cilicia, a city of no ordinary city. Please let me speak to the people. Having received the commander's permission, Paul stood on the steps and motioned to the crowd. And when they were all silent, he said to them in Aramaic, brothers and fathers, listen now to my defense. Father, we come this morning and we thank you for this text of scripture. And God, we're asking that by your power and by your grace that you would do something marvelous among us, Lord. This experience that Paul has gone through is very unique. The degree and severity of it is, is unique, but the experience itself is common to be misunderstood, to be slandered, to be falsely accused. And we've all experienced that here. And God, we're coming with eager hearts to know what does your word say about this? How should we respond? How can we advance the kingdom of God even in times of misunderstanding? And so we're praying, Father, that you would use this Bible study this morning to fulfill the purposes that you've sent it today. And we ask all these things in Jesus' name and everyone said, amen. This group of Asian Jews are really from Ephesus. Uh, the capital of, of Asia Minor was Ephesus. Ephesus was the place that had rejected Paul's message. Many people had come to Christ, but the Hellenistic Jews had run Paul out of town. Paul had left. He had been uh, beaten. He had been uh, denounced. He'd been slandered. He'd been falsely accused. If any of you have ever had this happen to you, not to the degree that Paul has, but to the degree that you've experienced a wound in your heart because someone has misunderstood you or someone has thought evil of you or assumed the worst about you or actually even intentionally tried to bring harm to your reputation, then you know the pain that comes when your integrity and your character and your reputation is damaged from that kind of a situation. But Paul was used to this. He went from city to city and wherever he went, he experienced this very same problem in his ministry. The Bible tells us that he was going from city to city, and every city he was in, there would be fruit, but there would also be opposition, and then he would leave. And we find him now in Jerusalem. 
this destiny that God has given him to preach the gospel to his own people, to the Jews. He was the pastor and the apostle to the Gentiles, but his heart for the Jews was strong. And he had a passion for them. And if you read at your leisure, chapter nine, 10, and 11 of Romans, you'll find out how serious Paul was about his commitment to see Jews come to Christ. It was so serious that he said, I wish myself accursed. In other words, I would give up my salvation, my own promise of eternal life if it meant salvation for the Jews. This is the burning passion of Paul's heart. And convinced that God had called him to this ministry to go to Jerusalem, he went despite the continuous and repeated warnings that bonds and affliction awaited him there. When he got to Jerusalem, as we, you might recall from our study in the, uh, in the text just preceding this, James and the apostles got this great report about what God was doing. I mean, this was just miracle stuff. Uh, that God was bringing in the Gentiles. They were receiving the Holy Spirit and being baptized by the Holy Spirit. They were being used in dynamic, incredible ways, and the Jewish people that at one time thought that salvation was for the Jewish nation alone had opened their heart and recognized that it was also for the Gentile. And so Paul, with his associates, along with Luke, brought this great report back to Jerusalem, and they totally rejoiced, but... James said, Paul, we need to let you know we're having a problem here because even before you get here, your name is being slandered. People are saying, Jews from Ephesus have come and they are saying that you are against the law, that you are against the prophets, that you are against Moses and even against this place, the temple. And they said, we know that's not true. But in order to quell that rumor and that falsehood, we want to suggest that you make a vow along with some other men that are making vows right now. We want you to pay their, their vow fees, which were quite exorbitant, uh, and to go through this seven-day ritual cleansing uh, in the temple. And so Paul immediately said, no problem, just to demonstrate that he wasn't against the Jewish customs or the Jewish laws. He was a Jew. And so he agreed to do this. And it was appropriate uh, additionally because for a Jew, when they'd been in Gentile country for any, uh, countries or areas for any length of time, having contact with Gentiles, it was an appropriate step to come to the temple and go through the seven-day ritual cleansing ceremony. And so Paul was more than agreeable to do so in order to build a bridge uh, to his, to his uh, nation and to the people of Israel, and in this case, to the people of Jerusalem. But it wasn't satisfactory for these Hellenistic Jews because they had an agenda. It wasn't just a misunderstanding they had with Paul. They hated Paul. They had a, they had a rejection. They really believed like Paul at one time in his life did that this was a cult, the way of Christ, the uh, gospel of Jesus Christ, the cross of Christ, that it was all a lie. And with a, a sincerity of heart, as Paul would later say, they're zealous, but they're, they're zealous in ignorance. They don't know. They haven't understood and so these Hellenistic Jews came against Paul and they stirred the whole crowd up, we're told in verse 27. It means to throw people in absolute, into absolute disorder and chaos. I don't think I probably have to say this, but that doesn't sound a lot like God. That doesn't sound like a lot of uh, anything that God would do. God doesn't bring chaos, he brings unity. God doesn't bring uh, disunity or uh, uh, you know, riots, he brings peace. That's what God does, generally. And so we find that uh, uh, right out of the gate that these Hellenistic Jews are stirring up the people in that town who don't even really understand what's going on, but they begin to slander and 
uh, rumor monger and begin to give a bad report about Paul before these Jews in Jerusalem have even had a chance to hear what Paul had to say. This isn't the first time. In fact, this is the ninth time that Paul has gone through this. It happened in Pisidian Antioch in Acts 13, in Iconium in Acts 14, in Lystra, Acts 14, Philippi, Acts 16, Thessalonica, Acts 17, Berea, Acts 17, Corinth, Acts 18, in Ephesus, Acts 19. You know, one thing you have to say about Paul is this guy just did not give up. You know, if this had been me, honestly, I'm not sure I would have been able to take all that for this many occasions. I would think, you know, maybe, I'm on, maybe I should try some other easier vocation. You know, there's gotta be an easier way to make a living, you know? But Paul had a calling, and that's what made all the difference. And so Paul persisted. When I think about Paul, uh, and going on a missions trip with him. We're, we're taking a missions trip to Macau this year. Pastor Bruce is gonna lead it. But I'm just thinking to myself, you know, to try to understand what it would be like to go on a missions trip with Paul, let's say that Pastor Bruce came up here next week and made the announcement, and he's got scars all over him. His hands are gnarled. He's hunched over, and he kind of hobbles up because his legs have been broken so many times. And he says, I wanna invite you all to Macau. We're gonna have a great time. I've been there 10 times and I've been beaten every time and boy, it's, a, it's an honor to serve the Lord in Macau. It'll cost you about $2,000, but the Lord will provide the money. Come on, come with me to Macau and serve the Lord, you know? And I think all of us here would be like, whoa, you know? We're gonna pray for you while you go to Macau. <laughs> we'll even give you money, but we're not going with you. But Paul had a whole entourage of men that went with him, despite the beatings, despite the scars, despite the fact that he has a litany of things he's gone through, scourgings and floggings and shipwrecks and beatings, and he'd been through everything you can imagine. And you know, here he is saying, we're going, we're going. And everyone's saying, Paul, you can't survive another one of these trips, you know? And Paul says, I have a mission from God. We're going. And so Paul goes into this not uh, unaware of the resistance that he would face. I like this definition of a, of a gospel preaching Christian. Completely fearless, continually cheerful, and constantly in trouble. And that's really the mark of Paul's life. The question is, why did these Hellenistic Jews hate Paul so much? They didn't even really know him. They didn't know his heart at all. So what drove their their vehement hatred against Paul and this message. Well, it's the same thing that drove it against Jesus Christ and, the, and drove it against Stephen, who was martyred, the first martyr in the church. The first was jealousy. Acts 13, 45 says, when the Jews saw all these crowds surrounding Paul, all these men and women turning to Christ, the bottom line is that they, they felt jealous. They were envious. Their, their little kingdom, their niche in the market, in the religious world, was being threatened. And so they came against Paul, and it says in this passage that they talked abusively against Paul and what he was saying. But they were also power hungry, and we find that in John eleven forty eight, 48, that uh, they counseled among themselves regarding Jesus, and they said, if we let Jesus go on like this, everyone will believe in him, and then the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. Do you kind of get what's behind their their passion, it's not Christ, it's not God, it's not the glory of God, it's not the call of God, it's their power, it's their position. It's what they had obtained and attained. God had given it to them, but then they began to jealously hoard it for themselves. 
And so verse 28 and 29 says that these people seized Paul and began to shout their accusations. I wanna share something with you just for a moment. Um, Step away from the text and it's not said in the text that this is the case, but we can assume this, is behind the accusations of these men is Satan himself. Satan himself is what's driving these Hellenistic Jews to slander and to speak poorly of the message of Paul, the gospel of Jesus Christ. So while we're looking at the actions of people here in this text, behind it all is really the enemy. Uh, Why do I say that? I say that because so often, sometimes when, when we are misunderstood, or when you are misunderstood, or when someone says something about you that's not accurate, and you're slandered in some way, and someone doesn't like you, and you've tried everything you can to try to remedy that, but they still just don't wanna, they still don't wanna respond. Here, here's the thing, is that behind all of that, we have to recognize that this isn't a battle with flesh and blood. And the worst thing that we can do is end up going toe to toe, head to head, calling the guy out and say, let's duke it out, you know? That's the worst thing that we can do, why? Because the Bible says that this is a battle of not flesh and blood, but it's a spiritual battle in the heavenly realms. Now, I, I need to say that if, if I've been a jerk or you've been a jerk, well, yeah, we're gonna have a problem. We're, forget this passage, it has nothing to do with us, we've just been bad. And when you're bad, you're gonna have problems and you're gonna have a bad reputation. But if you've done everything within your power to honor the Lord and to bring glory to God and these things still happen, at that point you can recognize that this is not an issue of flesh and blood. If you fight it on that level, you will lose. You will lose your peace, you will lose your joy, you will lose your reputation, you will lose your standing, and you will lose your integrity. You must respond to it, I must respond to it in a biblical way, and we will be talking about that in the next few moments. But the person behind all of this is Satan, who is a slanderer, a person who misrepresented God in the very opening chapters of Genesis to Adam and Eve. He's exposed as a liar in John chapter eight and the father of all lies. And in Zechariah 3.1 and Revelation 12.10, he's characterized as the accuser of the brethren. Now, we've all suffered that kind of a, of a drama in our life at different times. And if you haven't, you will. It's just part of life. The more of a leader you are, the more responsibility you have, the more often it'll happen. It just comes with the territory. The only people that don't get accused, the only people that don't, uh, are, are not misunderstood are people that are doing absolutely nothing. But there's not very many people like that on the planet. And so it will affect us. But even if you're not affected right now, here's the truth, is the Bible says that Satan is the accuser of the brethren and even now before the throne of God, the Bible says day and night he's accusing you before God trying to find fault, and by God's grace, he's saying, covered, 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 because of the blood of Christ. And because of that, God can say to you, do not fear, for I am with you. Do not be dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you, I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. But these accusations are spilling off the lips of these men, and they're four in particular, that, uh, that they bring before this crowd. And these accusations are designed to create a riot. They're not accurate, they're not truthful, they're not honest, but that's not their intention. Their intention is to kill the apostle Paul. And so they bring the most radical challenges and accusations that they can against Paul. The first is that Paul is teaching men everywhere against our people and against 
our law. Now, for the Jew, adherence and obedience to the law was the means of salvation in addition to being Jew. So you had to be a Jew and you had to adhere to and obey all 613 commandments of the Old Testament. And if you did those things, then you might find yourself in a position of being honored by God in his kingdom. But Paul was consistently giving a message that was contrary to that message. He was saying that it's by faith in God and that message is open to both Jew and Gentile alike. That anyone that believes in the message of Christ can have eternal life. Now, they seem to be contradictory. Paul seems to be saying the law doesn't save you and the law is, is of no value in salvation and in a sense he's right and yet the law does have value. The Hellenistic Jews misunderstood. They thought Paul was throwing the law out but Paul said no, the law has value. Let me take just a moment to explain from scripture the great value of the law even for New Testament believers today. The first is to make us conscious of our sin, Romans 3.20 and Romans 7, 7. It reminds us that we are sinners. We don't like that message really, but that message is necessary to properly diagnose our problems so that we can be healed. So the bad news has to come first, and the law sets the standard and makes it irrefutable and unmistakable that we have violated God's holy commands. The second purpose in Galatians 3.10 is to make the whole world accountable to God. In other words, nobody can say anywhere on the planet, I didn't know. I didn't, I wasn't aware. I didn't, I just, I can't be held accountable because this and that and the other thing. And, and what Paul says is the law came so that the whole world would be held accountable. So now it's not just our own sin that we're responsible for, but now the whole world is accountable for its sin. Thirdly, to silence every mouth before God, Romans 3.19 and Galatians 3.19. In other words, that nobody can come up with any fancy excuse as to why they are not accountable for their sin. But this last one is probably the most important and it's found in Galatians 3, verses 23 through 25, and that is to lead us to Christ. So the law had a very valuable purpose for the Jew, for the Gentile, for anyone, and that was to show us that the standard of God was being violated. When did God give the 10 Commandments? when the people of Israel were rioting down in the camp and having an orgy. He gave the law to show them how far they had fallen, not to have them somehow keep the commandments, but to show them how holy God is and how much they needed a redeemer and a savior. So all of these things, the law was designed not for us to somehow keep jumping over this hoop and jumping higher and jumping higher, but the law was given so that we would come to ourselves and say, there's no one that can keep this. I can't do it. I'm imperfect. And even if I tried, how many sins did it take for Adam and Eve to be ejected from the presence of God in the Garden of Eden? Only one. <laughs> Only one. If we slip up once in our lifetime, we're not fit for the kingdom of God apart from a savior. And so the law was given to drive us to Christ, to drive us away from self-sufficiency, from any sense in which we could attain salvation in, the own, in our own effort, in our own works. And so Paul says of the Jews in Romans 10, I can testify about them that they're zealous for God, but their zeal is not based upon knowledge. Since they did not know the righteousness that comes from God and sought to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. Christ is the end of the law so that there may be righteousness for everyone who believes. So Christ is the end of the law. That word in the Greek is teleos. It means the destination, the, the culmination, the goal. 
It's been completed. So Christ is the destination to which the law was pointing. He is the answer to the dilemma that the law brought into a life of an, of a, of an unbeliever, a sinner like us. And when a man or woman understands what the law is for, then suddenly it's this, the message is so fabulous that God forgives sins through Jesus Christ. And that simply by loving him and loving one another, we have fulfilled everything that the law pointed to. Isn't that wonderful? You don't, aren't you so glad you don't have 613 commandments you need to review every morning to make sure you don't goof up again? We have one and that's to love God, and the second is like it, and it's a reflection of loving God, and that's to love each other. If we do that, we're fulfilling the calling of God. What a simple, joyous life God has called us to. But these Hellenistic Jews didn't understand, and they were determined to bring Paul down. And so they said he's not only against the law, but he's against this very place, the same accusation that came against Jesus Christ, the same accusation that came uh, to Stephen, that led to his martyrdom. And then he said, Paul has also violated the temple by bringing Greeks into the temple and defiling this holy place. Now, here, here's the thing, is that the text in verse 29 says that, that these Hellenistic Jews assumed that Paul had brought Trophimus in the temple area when he came into the temple because earlier in the week they'd seen Trophimus walking around with Paul and the other Jewish disciples. And so they made an assumption Here's the definition of assumption from nomizo in the Greek. It means to suppose to be true without verification or proof. Ooh, uh, this is just like nasty stuff right now. I'm telling you, it ruins families. It ruins communities. It ruins churches. It de destroys marriages. Let me def define it again. To suppose to be true without verification or proof. In other words, you assume you come to conclusions, you connect dots without knowing all the other dots that are in between the two you're connecting. You draw a straight line, but the dots go like this. You don't know all the information. This is one of the most dangerous things for a Christian to do. And here's the thing I wanna share with you, is that it, the Bible's real clear. In the book of Proverbs, it calls someone that does this kind of assuming a fool. That's a really strong term. That's not my term, this is the Bible's term. Why? Because it leads to chaos. It leads to damaged reputations. It leads to violence even, in this case, rioting and near-death experience for the Apostle Paul. But it fit the agenda of these Hellenistic Jews to jump to this conclusion. No investigation, no inquiry of Paul while he was in the temple, no going up to this Greek man they thought might have been Greek, but he wasn't, he wasn't even in the temple, and say, are you Greek? No, we're all Jews. Oh, okay, great, thanks. We were just a little concerned because Legally, there was a placard outside of, of the Jewish temple written in both Greek and also in uh, Latin and it said no foreigner may enter with, within this barricade which surrounds the temple and enclosure. Anyone who is caught trespassing will bear personal responsibility for his ensuing death. <laughs> you know, that's like, it's not like you'll be fined. I mean, you're gonna die, so uh, don't come in if you're not a Jew. But instead of just asking the question, which didn't fit their agenda, they simply connected dots. And then they spread the lie that Paul had brought a Greek into the temple grounds defiling this holy place. This is a, a huge issue and I wanna take just a couple of minutes on this. Because when, there, there are two angles I wanna address this from. One is the angle of the danger of our assuming things 
And what do we do to respond when others have assumed things about us? So I wanna, I wanna hit the first angle first, is the danger of assumption. Uh, I'll give you some examples. Ascribing intentions to someone else that you've never verified. I just talked to someone this morning about that. They, uh, they assumed that someone was thinking something about them and, and uh, feeling badly about them for some reason, uh, but they don't know that. And, and, but they're functioning on that, that sense. And, and you know how we all are? There's a certain sense of insecurity and uncertainty in all of us. And, and when somebody looks at us strangely or doesn't respond quite the same way they normally do, we think, oh, wow, what did I do? You know? And, and we're not even thinking, my gosh, this person has a whole life that they're living. They've got all week that they're going through. They're having conflicts and difficulties and challenges of various kinds and they go through this whole experience and then they come to church or they come to the workplace or they come in the community or whatever and they don't respond to us like they normally do and we immediately think they have something against us. Are you following me? This is very, very dangerous and foolish to do something like this but ascribing intentions that are not verified or proven. Judging someone else's motives without asking. Someone does something and we immediately think evil. We, we think it was intended to, to be bad, and, and yet we don't really have the full information. Coming to, to uh, conclusions about other people's character without full information, and the worst, the worst is gossip. And it's not just when we have firsthand information, but when somebody, and I want to define gossip for you, by the way, and I want to tell you right out of the gate, I feel like I'm preaching to people that don't need to hear this. You guys are so good about this. That's part of the reason why God has preserved such a peaceful church. We have almost no problems in our fellowship. And, uh, and if you love gossip, and if you really like uh, drama in a church, uh, go somewhere else, uh, because that's not what happens here. We just don't have it. And it's not because I'm policing anything, it's just because you care so much about this precious work that God's doing in our midst that you are guarding it yourself. But gossip is talking to someone else or hearing a message from someone else that you're not directly involved and you have no authority to bring corrective measures to the situation. So in other words, going to a person and, and saying, you know, they say, how's your day? Oh, bad, I just had a problem with, you know, Jack or Frank or whatever. And uh, well, what happened? Well, I mean, oh man, he did this and he did that. And you're filling the heart of another person with things that may be true, but are being shared with the wrong person. What does the Bible say in Matthew 18, 15? If your brother is sinned against you, go to him privately. That means you don't go to your spouse, you don't go to three counselors, you don't call five girlfriends first. You go to the person privately. Why? Because you want to correct it in as small a manner as possible so that you're preserving the unity of the body of Christ and the integrity of that person's character, giving them a chance to respond, to get it corrected. What if you know that you've done something to someone and you've hurt someone's feelings? The Bible says in Matthew 5, leave your gift at the altar. First go and be reconciled, then come and offer your gift. Jesus says it's so important that I don't want your fellowship until you make that right with your brother or your sister. These are very serious matters that, that Paul is talking about. But it happens all the time where we violate these very basic tenets of biblical unity within the body of Christ and we hear gossip and hear somebody even slandering. By the way, slander is, is saying something that you know to be not true about someone to harm their character. Sometimes we think that's what gossip is. Gossip isn't that. Gossip is saying something that's true to someone that has no business hearing it and has no authority to bring any change to the situation. The only pe person that should be involved in, in a dialogue about those things should be the people, the direct parties who are directly involved going through a process that's noted for us in, in Matthew 18. 
You know, I, I had a, a real wake-up call. Um, I've actually had a number of wake-up calls over the years as a pastor where I have jumped to conclusions. I've had people come and tell me something and I was like, I'd, get, I'd find my heart kind of stirred up and upset. And then I'd go to the person and find out that it was completely a misunderstanding. And it was like, oh man, I'm so glad that I didn't, you know, unload. I'm glad that I didn't say anything inappropriate. I'm glad I didn't follow that line too far. There's a story I wanna share with you that I read about maybe 12 years ago or 15 years ago, actually it's probably 15, that changed my life in terms of being very, very careful about jumping to conclusions. I, I couldn't find the story. I'm gonna reconstruct it for you as best I can. It's a true story. A woman, a Christian uh, woman, who was, uh, lived in New York City. She was on the subway going home one day after work on a Friday. She's on the train. Anybody ride subways in New York? Okay, well, this was before they had iPods. And, and people just sit there and they, they read or they close their eyes. Everybody tries to not see each other. I don't know what it is, but they're like, you're not here if my eyes are closed. I'm going home and then I'll get in my house and you, you, you just didn't exist. And they get on the train and everybody's doing that. And then suddenly they stop at a, at a, at a stop that's fairly close to a hospital. And as they're... Um, Getting on the train, this, this push coming out and the push coming in, this family gets on. And this husband, and every, everybody in the family looks kind of disheveled, and they're kids from uh, upper teens to toddlers that get on the train. They're five children. They get on the train, and the husband is, is just almost like he's like a zombie walking on the train. He gets on, sits down. The kids kind of scatter themselves here and there. The, the youngest toddler is just screaming at the top of her lungs and pulling on him, and he's not even really picking her up. You know, he's putting his hand on her, on her arm, but he's just like... He's just like looking straight ahead like he's just a zombie. And, and the other kids are throwing paper airplanes. Two of the other girls are fighting and they're, they're, they're yelling at each other. And uh, that's mine, no it's not, this is mine, and that kind of a thing. It really disturbs the train. And uh, people are trying to read and they're trying to relax after work and on their way home. And this goes on for you know a, a few miles at least as they're traveling from stop to stop. And this one Christian woman, uh, you know, initially was kind of feeling sympathetic and then began to feel angry and upset. And she began to judge this man and, and judge him for his poor parenting, for his lack of attention, for their inconsiderate uh, behavior on the train, for the fact that he wasn't bringing any correction. But she, she just kind of screwed up her, her grace and her mercy as much as she could and her love and, and kind of grit her teeth and said, sir, this is very disturbing to everyone. Could you please, you know, is there something we can do to, to assist you with bringing your ch children into, into line because this is very distressing for us all. No one else is saying anything, but it, it, this is distressing. And, and she was angry inside. And he just started to cry. And he said, I'm so sorry. And he, and he turned to everybody and he says, I'm so sorry. And he turned to her and again, and he said, you know, it's been a really hard month. In fact, it's been a very hard year. You see, my wife has had cancer and uh, she's been in the hospital for the last month, and I've been working a full-time job and another part-time job and trying to take care of my family at the same time, and I know I'm not doing a good job. I'm, I'm just trying to hold life together, and truthfully, just now, we just came because my wife just passed away at the hospital, and we're on our way home to feed my kids, and I know that my kids are disruptive, and I know that they've, they're not behaving well, and I'm sorry that I'm not doing a better job, but they're distressed and they don't really know how to handle all this either. And I'm so sorry. And in the story, the woman just is like devastated. 
And other people on the train were listening very carefully, as you can imagine, to this conversation that was happening between this man and this woman. And they were all deeply convicted. Why? Because they had all jumped to the wrong conclusions. They had connected dots without knowing all the rest of the information that was lying between. And once they had the full information, it completely changed their response. And so as we look at this information, I wanna share with you, um, first of all, we have to be very careful not to make assumptions. The Bible says that love believes and hopes the best. That even when you're misunderstood or when somebody does something that's out of character or they get angry or they misbehave or something, that we still keep hoping and believing the best. That we still love, that we still encourage, that we don't retaliate, we don't harm. This is the way of Christ. And so that's the calling that we have. Now, if it becomes evident that there's information that, that, that does become clear to us, the Bible says go to that person. If they've sinned, don't just keep it to yourself. If it's really bothering you, go and, and address it with them. And so that's, that's the, the biblical mandate. Now, now what, what do we do if we are the ones that are misunderstood? Somebody else has connected dots but doesn't know anything about all this inf information that makes sense of these two dots, the beginning and the end point that they've connected. Well, the first thing that I wanna to suggest to you, and these are actually in your notes under your um, application questions, so you don't need to take notes on this except just to note them at the very bottom. I think it's number five on your application questions. The first thing is don't be surprised if you're misunderstood. Don't be surprised if you are slandered. Don't be surprised if your character or your reputation is impugned in some way. Why? Because the Bible says these things will happen. First Peter chapter four, verse 12. Dear friends, do not be surprised at the painful trial you are suffering as though some strange thing were happening to you, but rejoice that you participate in the sufferings of Christ so that you may be overjoyed when his glory is revealed. If you were insulted because of the name of Christ, you are blessed. You are blessed. For the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. If you suffer, it should not be as a murderer or a thief or any other kind of criminal or even as a meddler. However, if you suffer as a Christian, do not be ashamed, but praise God that you bear that name. So the first call is don't be surprised. This is a part of life. It's just a part of life. Secondly, rejoice and be glad. Matthew chapter five, verse 11. Sermon on the Mount, the words of Jesus. Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad because great is your reward in heaven for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. I wanna practice rejoicing right now over our problems. I'll give you an example of how I do it. Yay. Okay, all together now. One, two, three. Yay. Okay. We don't like it, do we? But the Bible says that we're to rejoice. Now here's the thing, when we suffer inappropriately, not having done anything wrong, now he says if you suffer for being, being an idiot, a meddler, sinning, something, well you, you bear the consequences. But if you're suffering for something that you have not done, then the Bible says rejoice because great is your reward in heaven. God sees that and he says if you respond biblically, I'm gonna reward you for that one. And that's why we can say, Yay. And hopefully as we move on, God will allow the, the intensity of our heart to be a little bit more uh, explicit and, and expound those words a little bit more aggressively and say, yay, 
I don't like it. It doesn't feel good, but there's a reward awaiting me if I respond biblically. The third thing I want to suggest to you in responding to false accusation is meditating on God's decrees or on God's word. Listen to what the psalmist says in Psalm 119, verse 23 and 24. And, uh, and th- this is amazing. It says, though rulers, the governing authorities, mayors, you know, senators, whoever you want to think about when you think of the rulers, they sit together and slander me. I mean, you know, it's one thing to have a neighbor or a friend or whatever or somebody at church have a little problem with you, but imagine that all of the leaders on, on Kauai just decided they don't like you. The people on the planning commission, the people in the tax department, the assessment department, the phone company, the electric company. I think they're already mad at us, don't you? Um, Imagine all of these authorities and and rulers in in an area and that they have it in for you. Do you think they can ruin you? Oh, yes, they can. They could drive you off this island in a week. No problem. And the psalmist says in the midst of this, though rulers sit together and slander me, your servant will meditate on your decrees. He goes farther and says, your statutes are my delight, they are my counselors. So in other words, he says, I'm going to get wisdom from God on how to respond. I'm gonna put my trust in you, which is the fourth point I wanna make here briefly. Set apart Christ as Lord in your heart, 1 Peter 3, 19. Set apart Christ as Lord. What are you doing when you set apart Christ as Lord? You are saying, God, you are sovereign, you are the king. My life is not my own. I've been bought at a price. I am your servant. I don't have any problems. You have problems. My problems are your problems, God. How are you going to fix the problems that your servant has? How will you rescue me? How will you deliver me? You put your heart in a place of confidence and trust in God, knowing that there's nothing that a man can do or a woman can do or a a ruler can do to undermine the work of God. Nothing can trump God. And so you set apart Christ as Lord in your heart in the midst of this slander. It's very difficult to do. It's very hard. One of the, the, kind of the last frontiers for me of learning the principles I'm sharing with you was my reputation. Because I had this mistaken notion that, that the ministry here would be affected by my reputation. And there's some truth to that. But, but the ministry isn't dependent upon my reputation. This ministry belongs to God. It's not my ministry. You're not my people. This is God's church. It's God's property, God's tent, God's asphalt, God's pulpit. You're God's people. It doesn't depend on my reputation to continue or to survive or to bear fruit. It's up to God. But I was mistaken in my thinking that if my reputation was sullied or somehow harmed by slander or false accusation, that it would diminish the work of God. And God told me one day, he said, I'm I'm crying out to God, this is about maybe a couple years ago, and I'm crying out to God because I was in one of those moments where, where these things were happening to me. And I said, God, you know, this is, this is important. I, I don't care about this or that or the other thing, but my reputation that's tied to the church, and God says, you think the church is dependent on your reputation? And I was like, I was really taken back, to be honest with you. I was shocked. I was like, what? <laughs> it's not? I mean, you, you know, this could all happen and, and everything will still go on. And he says, yep. I've never heard God say that before, but he said, yep, just like that. <laughs> And, uh, and so this was an arena where I just basically had to let it go and say, okay, I, it's okay. I don't have to defend my reputation. 
I don't have to defend anything. And it was one of the most freeing things that's ever happened in my life. And from that time on, and it's actually been years before that, but, but emphasized again and again, is that I just don't have to defend my reputation anymore. It's not necessary. Why? Because of the next fifth step I'm gonna share with you. Commit yourself to God, which is the first part of that. Commit yourself to God, entrust yourself to him. He is the one that will guard and sustain and, and uh, reveal in the end the truth of who you are, what you've done, your character, your person, your integrity. Commit yourself to God, and here's the kicker, continue to do what? Good, continue to do good. Just keep doing good. Do good to the people that don't like you. Do good to the people that are outside the circle of anything that's even happening with that. Do good at church, do good at home, do good in the community, do good at your job, do good. And you know what? those naysayers and slanders and people that may come against you, in the end, will be buried in the wake of the good that you've done. Not harmed, but your reputation will stand in and of itself in the community or in the church or at home or at your job because you have consistently disproven the slander by living a life that honors God and is good. And so that's what the scripture calls us to do. Well, I've deviated from the text here, and I want to get back to it in verse 30. It says the whole city was aroused. They seized Paul and dragged him from the temple, and they were trying to kill Paul. The fortress of Antonio is right next in the, in the uh, northwestern corner of the temple, up two flights of stairs. The commander, who is in charge of over 1,000 troops, and he has centurions who are in charge of 100 each, has 500 men in this fortress at any one time to deal with problems that would arise in Jerusalem. He heard that the whole city was in an uproar, not just a little bit of it, the whole city. There were probably thousands of people as they were running, not everybody even knowing what was going on, but they were just running uh, because they heard that the temple was being defiled and so they were converging to defend it. And the, the officer came down with his soldiers and, and stopped the beating. Now this beating, uh, the word in the Greek doesn't mean like with just fists and hands, but he was being clubbed to death. He was being clubbed with staffs. And you know, I don't know how many guys you can get around one guy with, with sticks and, and beat Paul, but we have to really understand that this is something that we haven't seen very often. Maybe during Rodney King, if you remember that guy that was being hit with bricks, uh, the truck driver, that's probably somewhat close to what was going on with the Apostle Paul. Uh, he he was undoubtedly had broken bones as a result of this encounter. They were trying to kill him. And the commander came down with his troops and they basically rescued Paul. Not necessarily because they were trying to get Paul, they were just trying to quell the riot and get whatever was the, the focal point of this riot out of the area. And he arrested Paul and bound him with chains and began investigating the situation uh, as he should, trying to find out who Paul was and what he had done. Now what did you do? I mean, <laughs> I've never seen this many people upset. My gosh, look at you, you're a beaten mess. What did you do? that ever happened to you when you get slandered and other people come around and say, what, what did you do? How did you get that person so upset? You must have done something really bad. <laughs> and that's what this commander is doing. It makes sense, but it was wrong. Proverbs 18, 17 says, the first to present his case seems right till another steps forward. Here's the principle. You know, if you don't get anything else out of this message, this is probably the most important verse I'm gonna share with you right now. The first to present their case seems right till another steps forward and questions them. 
The whole point is, is that if you only hear one side of a story, you are in great, and, and then you begin to make assessments and judgments and take action based on that one perspective, you are a fool and you've made a terrible error in judgment. You've done the wrong thing. You've violated scripture and you've sinned. This is what the Bible teaches. And this is what this man was trying to avoid. He didn't just come and put Paul to death. He said, Paul, what, what, what happened? Who are you and what did you do? So as an authority, he did exactly what needed to happen and exactly what every Christian man and Christian woman should do under circumstances like this or any, any circumstances is if you're gonna hear one side, you better make very sure before you come to any judgments or assessments that you hear the rest of the story. And so this commander did and he, he, uh, he ordered that Paul be taken to the barracks because the violence was so great that they actually had to carry him out on their shoulders to get him out of the reach of these, uh, these violent rioters. His, his very life was in jeopardy. Now here's, here's a, a couple things I just wanna, I wanna finish off with. Paul, in the midst of all this rioting, you know, if I was Paul, I, I'd say, you know what? Good for you. You're all going to hell. You'll never hear the message. I'm not gonna tell it to you. I've had it up to here with you guys. This is the ninth time you guys have, you're just following me everywhere. Well then just eat the fruit of your reward that awaits you in hell, you know, I mean. Uh, I might be tempted to say something like that. But the Apostle Paul, he doesn't do anything like that. What does he say? He approaches the commander, beaten to a pulp, undoubtedly broken up, with lacerations, and he says to the commander, Commander, could I ask you a, a favor? I mean, it's like respectful, honoring, even in the midst of this. And the commander responded, thinking that, that he was actually an Egyptian that had started a revolt some years earlier and had 4,000 assassins. In fact, this word in the Greek means dagger men, dagger men, because they would go around in Rome. Their whole purpose was to overthrow Rome, and they were the first century terrorists of that time, and there were 4,000 of them, and they would actually assassinate. They would target different leaders in Rome and also within Judaism, and they would kill them, and they would just pull out their dagger and, you know, you know, and then put the dagger back and walk away. They'd be all surrounded by other dagger men and they'd walk away and nobody, they could never find out who did this. And, and adding insult to injury, Paul has already been slandered, already accused, already, you know, defiled in his reputation and everything. He's been beaten and now the commander says, aren't you that terrorist guy? You know, it's like, no, I'm not the terrorist guy. But Paul doesn't do that. He says, no. He says, I'm a Jew from Cilicia from Tarsus, and I'm a Roman. And right away, the commander's very concerned because he'd already bound him in chains. That was against Roman law for a Roman to ever be bound or to be imprisoned or arrested before trial. And so this commander was, was deeply concerned. And so Paul said, I wanna speak to these people. Can you believe this? It's like, Paul, don't you get it? They don't like you. They don't like your message. They're not gonna listen. But this is how passionate and how determined Paul was. And this is something I just wanna relate very briefly. What does it take for you to stop sharing the gospel with someone? Not very much sometimes, does it? Little criticism, little roll of the eyes, little making fun, a little joke, little ridicule, and it's like we go silent. Not Paul. 
He wanted permission to speak. This was the opportunity he had been waiting a lifetime for. He had a passion for the salvation of his fellow Jews and undoubtedly believed that even though this seemed to be a Satan-inspired event, that he recognized the orchestrating power of God behind it. Part of the reason why God prophesied in advance and told him what awaited him so that he wouldn't be depressed or distressed by the events as they unfolded. But he wanted to preach the gospel. He was willing to go through anything. He was willing to die. And he was willing to die in Jerusalem. And that willingness was met with reality some years later as he died as a martyr for Christ. I wanna finish by wrapping this up with just a, a few observations. I think the first thing I wanna encourage you in is that we have to be very, very careful about making assumptions. Don't ever jump to conclusions. Don't ever connect dots without getting the full information. And if you don't want the full information, then just put your pencil and ruler away and just love each other. Don't gossip if it's not something that's directly related to you, you shouldn't even be involved. If you're not a witness to, to an event or a part of it, you shouldn't even be involved. And never, never slander someone. The only reason people slander is out of jealousy or envy or power concerns, but the church is never to be involved in that kind of, a, of an activity. So I wanna really caution you and warn you, but also affirm you and applaud you because you are a church who is marked and has marked this congregation and this island by being people that don't participate in these kind of activities. And you are an honor to Christ and an honor to the kingdom and an honor to the character and nature of God. And I wanna encourage you, guard that precious work in our midst by following the biblical mandates when there are problems or misunderstandings or difficulties. The second thing I wanna say is that we've got to expect that we're gonna be misunderstood. This is what helped Paul so much, the prophecy in advance. Over and over in the scriptures, we're told that we will be misunderstood, we will be slandered, we will be wronged, and we need to be willing to not only accept it as a part of the package, but we need to be willing to respond biblically uh, when those things happen. Don't be surprised, rejoice, yay. <laughs> Meditate on God's decrees, Set apart Christ as Lord in your heart and then commit yourself to your faithful creator and continue to do good. Keep racking it up. Make this week count for the glory of God. Father, we thank you for this time. Thank you for this wonderful uh, gathering of men and women who love you so deeply, who at times struggle, who at times have been wronged and slandered and hurt, who may even have misunderstandings and wounds that they're bearing even now as I speak and they're coming to mind. I pray that you would show them as they meditate on your word how to properly correct these situations, that they might walk in peace, guard our hearts, help us to guard our own hearts, protect the precious work, and thank you, Lord, that you will never leave us or forsake us, that you say keep going, keep working, keep laboring, keep speaking, keep loving, keep serving, for I am coming soon, and my reward is with me. And we ask all these things in Jesus' name, and everyone said, amen.